Well, good morning. We have an awful lot to talk about this morning, and I... Uh, before I get into the intro of the message, there's something that's really kind of been striking me as I prepared for this particular weekend, and it really kind of came up yesterday uh, in my heart, and I was thinking about the challenge, do we live like people rescued? Do we live like people redeemed? Do we live like people that have had someone die for them? I, you know, I wonder whether or not we did at some point when we were all fired up about that idea and then it's kind of, we've taken it for granted. Um, we make a lot of decisions that seem to suggest that we aren't living that way. Um, I guess, I guess for me, the idea was, why are we so inconsistent? Why are we so inconsistent with what we're trying to accomplish? Uh, give me a, give you a kind of a practical example. Uh, for summer, I've been really trying to work out and lose uh, a last little bit of, of weight um, because I want actually to be able to see the hard work that I do. And I was trying to lose this. So I decided two days ago, now I'm fired up. I'm, I'm, I'm all in. I'm going for this final thing and I'm going to start really hardcore dieting. Uh, yesterday was my wife's birthday. <laughs> the day before that, I took the kids uh, and her. She wanted to go see Karate Kid, right? So we go to Karate Kid. If I'm really focused on dieting, why is it that I <laughs> ordered the largest popcorn <laughs> that apparently is for an elephant? <laughs> And we got extra butter on it. And literally, by the time we were halfway through the movie, and Susie goes, hey, can I have a little bit of the popcorn? And I reached down, and it was gone. All right. <laughs> it was largely Jillian, my nine-year-old, that ate it all. I may have had a few. Um... Then I'm, 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 I'm driving here to do the message and I'm like, oh, I completely blew it with that whole popcorn thing. I've got to get back on track, but it's really hot. I got to go get a blizzard. I got to get a large one. So I, so on the way to come to church, I got this enormous blizzard from Dairy Queen that was Reese's peanut butter cups in it. Cause I was like, it's so hot. It is so hot out here. It is so hot. Um, clearly hot will help burn away what I just ate. Uh. And it's so funny that I just made this determination that I was going for one goal. And then I did completely counter opposite to what I'm trying to do. What is that all about? What is that in our minds and in our hearts that allows us to do that? It's embarrassing. It's frustrating. And I even knew it was going to come at a cost. And I still did it anyway. And I think of all the times that, that I keep saying, I really want to spiritually dive in and get a lot deeper, and I want to do this, and I want to do that, and I want to be much more disciplined, and I want to be able, you know, you all know what I'm talking about. And we just don't. As a matter of fact, a lot of times after we make a decision like that, we flip-flop to the other side. Not only do we not do anything, we do the opposite. 
Never more is that clear than when someone hurts us and we go into self-destruction mode. Isn't that bizarre? Where someone literally trashed our world, we're hurting inside, so we go do something self-destructive. What in the world is that all about? I hurt so bad, I'm going to go hurt me worse. Doesn't it sound foolish? But you know what I'm talking about. Why can we not be consistent with the goals we say we have? And it's not that we're just saying it. I think we really believe it. I think we really want those goals. I think they're very important to us. But we do so many things that are counterproductive. Today is part seven in our first Peter series. Uh, I entitled it Radically Different, the message today. And we're going to need our Bibles and the handout sheet that was handed to you at the front door. If you don't have a Bible today, please raise your hand. We'll bring one to you. Brian and the team are coming down uh, to bring a Bible to you. Keep your hand up until you receive one. And as I lead you toward the fill in the blank on the sheet that is in front of you, I'm going to kind of give you a couple other things to think of. Consider this. We as Christians, and if you are not in a place where you could call yourself a Christian, you are still examining Jesus Christ and you're kind of seeking as to what God would have for you, I'm not talking to you. I'm, I'm about to beat up people that are brothers and sisters here. All right. But we as Christians tend to be radical in the minimal things and only slightly different in the major things. You go, well, what do you mean? Well, let me say it again and then I'll give you five examples. We tend to be radical in the minimal things and only slightly different. In the major things, for example, we are radical in politics, slight on selflessness. I mean, I could pretty much tell on a lot of voting issues where people stand. I can't tell at all the difference between my friends in church and my friends in the neighborhood on selflessness. They look the same. We are radical in media selection, slight on humility. I can't tell who's Christian and who's not by their level of humility, not in my world. Some of the most arrogant people I know are Christians. We are radical in abstention of drinking drugs and smoking, but we're slight on love. How many organizations are out there loving on people when we're still busy hanging out in here singing Jesus songs? We are radical in controlling profanity, but slight on surrender. Is your life surrendered or are you still playing the games I'm playing? We are radical in appearance, slight on pride. Have you ever read some of the Proverbs passages that talk about what Jesus uh, really hates? Have you ever read any of those? These are an abomination to God and it lists out. All these different things. There's these six, and then this seventh one makes God throw up. You've read those? Right? Do those lists coincide with what you're radical about? Probably not. Most of the things I know the church is hyper-motivated towards are not on that list. 
Most of the things that are, um, oh goodness, we better boycott that, are not on that list. What's on that list is a lying tongue, a prideful heart. And I don't see any church motivated radically against that. I don't see any church boycotting pride. The fill in the blank in front of you is this. Christians are to be radically different in all the right ways. Christians are to be radically different in all the right ways. Not just the Christian church subculture ways. I feel like when you come into the church, there's two great realizations that you have to come to in your journey. The first thing is that when you first become a believer, there's this radical realization as you walk into the church of, oh my goodness, I have to be different than the world. And there's a certain level to where you're thinking in your heart, I'm never going to be like these people. Right? I mean, you look around the church, people have their hands raised to God, they're, they're praying. In conversations, you hear stuff like, I was praying a half hour the other day, and you're thinking, I've never prayed in my life. And there's this realization that, man, there's a lot of stuff that has to change. I don't hang out with the same crew anymore. I don't do the same things anymore. I don't think the same thoughts anymore. I can't let my mind go there. And this dramatic realization, wow, I have a lot to do to be different than the world. And you feel really behind. If you feel that way, that's entirely normal. But I believe there's a second great realization that hits. The second great realization is after you're in the church for a while and you see behind the scenes, you realize you don't want to be like most of the people in church. That they're only minimally Christians anyway. And that what Jesus has truly called you to is far different than what you see. The realization that everyone here is not as they seem is a very difficult realization to deal with. At first, the idea that everybody's a spiritual giant to realizing that the majority of us are only moderately fired up. It's tough. What is Jesus calling you to? What is he asking you to be radical about? These are the things that we're going to be challenged with today. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4? 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 1 in your Bibles it's page 859 that were handed to you, if you need to find it that way, 859. Now, last week, you may have noticed, I finished up chapter 3 and then jumped to chapter 4, verse 12. I did that because they all happened to deal with suffering. So I did two bookends, moved them all together into one particular message. We're now going to go back and cover verses 1 through 11 to talk about how we ought to live. So that little... Uh, parenthesis in between two subjects on suffering. And then next week, we will be closing out the book together. So, let's take a look at the first two verses, and we'll pray for the word and see what God has for us. First Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. 
As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Is that true? Should be. Let's pray that it is. Heavenly Father, would you make us into something more than we are right now? May you take us deeper into deeper waters, purify us more. Show us why we're doing what we're doing. Give us the understanding and motivation that we might be able to fight the good fight and be someone that pleases you. May you be praised and glorified in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Starts out with, therefore. What do you mean, therefore? Therefore what? Well, because Jesus died on the cross and bought us back, remember he died once for all sin and we had this big discussion. Therefore, we ought to live differently is the point. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, meaning he died on the cross for our sins, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. And that word literally in Greek is like a soldier puts on his armor, gear up, get ready, lock and load, whatever phrase you want to use. Prepare yourself, lock down, gear up in your mind to begin to act and live the example that Jesus set before us. What's intriguing is that the Bible all over the place, maybe you've seen this pattern, it's largely in the New Testament. There's a lot of phrases that start with, if this is so, then this should be so, right? Have you noticed that pattern? This is true, therefore This ought to be true. What's intriguing is all the times that it's not in our lives, right? All the times when it says, if Jesus died for you, you should be more forgiving. If Jesus forgave you, you shouldn't wrestle with that as much. And yet we tend to find that they don't always translate. Why? Why is there an inconsistency there? Therefore, since Christ suffered in the body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. Well, what? What do you mean? He who suffered in the body is done with sin. I think I know what that means. But honestly, when I went through and did a lot of research, I came up with options. Shocking. (laughs) That's really weird. I think that commentators came up with three different options on what this could mean. Let me throw these out and you tell me what you think it means, right? Does it mean that suffering itself purifies, sanctifies, makes us more like Jesus? In other words, the more we go through difficult times and hardships, the more we mature and learn the great truths of life and that suffering in and of itself is the great purifier. Is that what it means? I don't think so, but I understand the point. Does it mean After being persecuted by the world, why in the world would you want to go back to the very things that the people do that are persecuting you? In other words, if you are being challenged and beat up by the world, why do you want to engage in it anymore? It's kind of like now the enemy is drawn a line in the sand. Why do you want to hop back over and hang out with them? Great point. I don't think that's what it means, but I get it. I think it's the third Since we are covered with Christ 
and we symbolically died with him. Isn't that what baptism signifies, right? The lowering down in the water, going down into the grave, coming back up, being resurrected with him. It says that when we start a relationship with Jesus Christ and surrender our lives to him, we now have become one. We are one new entity, one new corporation, that all that he has done transfers to our account. Therefore, if he has died, we have died. And once you die, you're done wrestling with sin, right? Because you're dead. There's no more struggle. Well, we symbolically died with Jesus Christ, so we should be done with sin. I think that's what it means. Now, you obviously can make up your own determination. I mean, any of those may well be legit. But I guess I keep asking myself, regardless of what it means, am I done with sin? Not really. I mean, I still see that I'm pretty motivated to keep sinning. Why is that? Why does it still hold an allure if it's damaging? Because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. Verse 2. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires. Meaning those passions and drives that are selfish. But he lives the rest of his life for the will of God. Because he knows that he's been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. He knows that he's been rescued. Why would he want to go back to Egypt? Right? Now that you've been taken out of bondage, now that God has done this dramatic, supernatural deliverance, why in the world, as he took Israel out, did they want to go back? You all remember that story, right? For you have spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans do. Now, the word pagans in Greek is actually Gentiles. But the idea is non-believers. He said, you've already spent enough time of your life. You've already wasted enough time living for yourself. We don't really have that kind of time anymore. Well, what kind of stuff is he talking about? I need you to remember we're talking about an ancient world that makes our culture, as much as everybody loves to talk about, oh, we're in Sodom and Gomorrah. Whenever people whine about what's going on in our world today, it, it kind of makes me laugh because... In the ancient world that Paul and the early church had to live in, their religious institutions were horrendous, full of debauchery. And that was the religious folks. I mean, it's funny because in our world still, you have sinners and you have the religious people and the religious people are still trying to do good stuff. Not in their world. Everybody was messed up. And there was no rules, no laws. As a matter of fact, if you wanted to be religious, you were encouraged to do some pretty psychotic things. And so he begins to list these out. He says, you know what you used to do. Now, let me pause one more thing. This doesn't apply particularly to me. Why? Because I've sinned far more as a Christian than as a non-Christian. Why is that? Because I came to Jesus at about six Right? I, I am the product of what you keep praying for with your kids. I pray, Lord, that my kids would come to know you at an early age and they wouldn't have to go make all the mistakes that I made. And I, right? I don't even have this cool testimony talk, right? It's kind of like, well, before Jesus, I used to watch cartoons. <laughs> I mean, I don't really have, there's really nothing I'm going to say. 
There was no period where I fell away from the Lord for a long period of time. There was none of that. So I'm looking at this and thinking, well, I don't know if I've spent enough time in the world. Actually, I need to log some more time, right? (laughs) But when Peter's talking and he shares this, it applied to everybody. Why? Because the church just started. Everybody was pagan. There was no such thing as Christianity. You were either a Jew or you were pagan. That was really all you had. Now, if you're a Jew, it might not have applied to you either. But he's talking to a bunch of non-Jewish folks, and he's saying, you know what I'm talking about. If you were not involved in the Jewish lifestyle, you know exactly what your worship was like. You know what you were encouraged to do. You know what it was like to hang out with all your friends. And everybody in the church just got saved. Can you imagine how weird that church was? I mean, everybody's just trying to figure it out. There is nobody that's, oh, I've been in the Lord for about 10 years now. No. You've been in the Lord for about three. And you're an elder. Right? He says, you remember, you spent so much time doing what the pagans chose to do. Living in debauchery, that's excessive sexual sin. Lust, extreme immoral desires. Drunkenness, which means habitual intoxication. Orgies. Extreme parties of drinking and sex, carousing, which is overflowingly reckless living, and detestable idolatry, which means you're out there worshiping another god or valuing something other than the true god. That was what they all used to do. That's a pretty radical transformation. He says, are you done now? You done with that? I mean, that's what you spent all your time doing. I mean, up to this point, that's been your life. Now you're flip-flopping, and now you're going to be doing something radically different. You done? Or you still want to walk back there? You want to put one foot there, one foot there? We're not doing that. You're done with that. I'm going to go on a tangent. So I'd let you know. At some point, we need to own the fact that sin costs us. And it costs us more than a large blizzard. Because here, here's the problem. And this is my personal opinion. This is not gospel fact, so take it with a grain of salt. I personally believe we continue to sin because it doesn't really impact our lives that much. That's why I think. I think that the only way we can sin as a Christian is if somehow we can excuse it or say... It's not that big of a deal. Otherwise, we'd have a really, really hard time blatantly rebelling against God. So how have you worked it out in your mind to where your current sin that you're wrestling with is cool? How have you figured that one out? Because I figured it out on all my sin. I found a way to try to justify everything. I think that, well, I'm a nice guy and I do so much good stuff that God should let this one slide, right? We do a lot of that stuff. But here's something intriguing. We will get involved in certain sinful behaviors because really it doesn't impact our lives very much. And it should. Let me give you an example. Last night I used uh, pot. So we're going to switch it up for you today. We're going to use drinking. Now here's the thing. Some of us as believers. What was that? Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. I didn't use pot last night. Ah. Ah, ah, that's pretty funny. Well done. <laughs> Way to derail my message. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. 
We all wrestle with different things. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> all right. Let me see if I can get us back on track. <laughs> Let's say, for example, you're an excessive drinker. Yeah? And you will drink not just to kind of, hey, I enjoy the taste of alcohol, I'm kicking back and just relaxing and I'm not getting buzzed, I'm not getting hammered, but you literally go right past the line. You're out there and every day you're throwing down quite a few. You know that you are now altered in your state and you do it on a daily basis. Why are you cool with that? The Bible says that's not okay. Why are you okay with it? Here's my suggestion. My suggestion is because it doesn't impact your life very much. Here's why. Because after a long day at work and a hard day at work, you come home and you're really not doing anything. Right? I mean, you, whether or not you go to Walmart or whether or not you sit home on the couch and drink really is not a big toss-up. Who cares? Really, it doesn't change anything. It's not dramatically impacting the kingdom of God. It doesn't really have some great impact other than you altering. And sure, it has a huge impact on your family, but not in your mind, right? But you continue to do it because it's not a big deal. Now, let's take that exact same analogy and let me spin it. Let's say, for example, we all go out to Romania and we're all on a mission trip. Day in, day out, we're getting hassled by the authorities. We're trying to figure out ways to make the money stretch that were given to us to maximize ministry. We're loving on these kids. We're in the orphanage all the time. We're, they're constantly around us asking us a million questions about our lives. We're answering questions about Jesus. And all the time, we're coming back together and trying to re-encourage each other because our heart is being broken. And we're doing this 24 hours a day, right? Right in the middle of that thing, I go, hey, you guys want to go get smashed? What are you likely going to say? No, what are, you, are you kidding me? What are you talking about? Why would we do that? Dude, we're right in the middle of something. No, I'm not going to sit there and drink in front of the kids. I'm not going to role model that. What are you talking about? And no, no, the whole time, if I'm smashed, all of a sudden someone comes up to me and they're like, so explain to me what in the world's going on with Jesus Christ. I'm not even going to be clued in at all. No, i got to be clear-minded, man. I mean, we're doing something. Oh. Suddenly now it matters. How come it doesn't matter all the time? Oh, because you're not doing anything. Oh, I get it. Another fast analogy. A lot of folks and friends that I've had smoke a lot, and it's no big deal as long as you're just walking to the car. Get in the car, drive somewhere, get out, walk into the store, come back out, get in the car, drive. The minute you start training for a marathon, smoking matters. And I've had a lot of friends have to quit smoking because they started trying to train for something. All of a sudden, they can't even run a mile without wheezing. And they're like, oh my gosh, I've got to get this out of here because now it's hindering what I'm trying to do. I wonder to what degree we need to have a lifestyle that provides a reason to be clear-headed. They, meaning non-believers, verse 4, 
they think it's strange that you don't plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. Meaning they think it's weird that you don't join them in the hardcore partying. They think that is absolutely bizarre. In their worldview, they have work hard, play hard. There's really nothing else. There's no value in abstaining from anything. As a matter of fact, in this life, you should probably try to get everything you can get. So they think it's absolutely weird that when they start going, hey, I kind of got a line in on this. You want to come join me? And you say no. And they're like, why? And it's offensive to them. Literally, the next phrase goes, and they heap abuse on you. I always thought this was really, really weird. Have you ever been in an environment where someone offered you to do something? Let's say it's a work environment. And they were going out on sales calls, and they knew a way to cut corners. They knew a way to lie and get something more. And they wanted you to do it with them. Have you ever had that environment? You say no, and they get mad at you. Okay, let's for maybe some of the younger crew. You're at a party, and they're like, hey, you're going to go grab a beer? I'll go grab one for you. And you're like, no, I'm good. They're like, what's up? What's, what's that all about? And they start getting irritated that you're not drinking with them. Or they're going to do some drugs, and you're not going to do it, and they don't understand. And they get really angry that you're not doing it. That has always made me boggle my mind. Why? Because here's the practicality in my head. If there are drugs available and you're not doing it, that means more for me. I don't care if you're doing it or not. If there's beer and you're not drinking it, I drink more. I don't understand why anyone would get mad and want me to do it. I'm taking their stuff. So why do they get mad? Because I believe they know deep down there's a cost that comes with it and they don't want to pay the cost alone. It's only fun when everybody pays the cost. Then everybody has a story to tell. Everybody's in on it. Nobody has a tendency to be on the outside looking in. And they just don't get it. And they think by your abstaining that you're judging them. Hmm. But they will have to give account, verse 5, to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. It's not like they just get to do whatever they want. Everybody gives an account at some point. For this reason, the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. What? <laughs> we got another one. What do you mean the gospel was preached to those that are now dead? What does that mean? Well, the commentaries go, this is a very difficult one. Thank you. Let me just tell you what I think it means, and you can argue with it, right? I think it means for the reason that everyone's going to be held accountable, for this reason, the gospel was preached to Christians who have been persecuted, perhaps martyred, are even now dead, so that... Though they were judged by men in the body, saying, this guy's useless, get rid of him, he's an irritant, let's kill him for his faith. But live according to God in regard to the Spirit. They were alive and tracking with God in all the right ways. I think that's what it means. But it doesn't really matter. What is Peter's point? Everybody gives an account. And God's going to make sure... That you engage with the gospel, and what are you going to do with it? 
You going to live like you're going to give an account? You going to live like you're set free? You going to surrender to Jesus Christ? What are you going to do with it? Verse 7. The end of all things is near. What does that mean? Jesus hasn't come back. It's 2,000 years later. The end of all things is near, meaning the consummation of the kingdom where God wraps everything up is hovering at this very moment. At any moment, click, it can go. And it's always been that way ever since the cross. But it's even more than that. Let's make it personal. You don't know when your time to go is. I'm going to a funeral today after our business meeting for someone that lost their lives way too early. They were seven years old. The end of all things is near for everyone. Yeah? It also means that the kingdom of God is right near you. It's in, we are in the atmosphere of it. If that is, case, if that is the case, therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled. Clear-minded is literally in Greek, keep your mind safe. Do what's necessary to keep your mind safe. Clear-minded says be sober-minded, clear in your head. Why? Because the end is near, and so that you can, what's the next phrase? Pray. Be clear-headed so you can pray. We have to figure out how to have a healthy prayer life. I always look at these passages about Jesus in absolute envy, where it says Jesus is busy in his ministry and he's running around. Everybody's pulling at him. Everybody wants something from him. He's doing miracles. He's loving on people. He's giving, 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 giving. And then all of a sudden he goes, all right, hold up. I got to step out for a second. Withdraws from everybody into silence and solitude and connects with his father and emerges back out empowered. I long for a prayer life like that. Some of you have that. Some of you are far more mature than I am in the areas of prayer. Me, my mind is not clear and I am not self-controlled enough. How do I know that? Because when I withdraw into a quiet time of prayer, I have distractions flooding my mind like mad. I literally get into the quiet and all this roar of white noise fires up in my head you have that some people have quieted their hearts quieted their spirits quieted their minds that they emerge from the busyness walk out into the quiet with jesus and god downloads what they need to be doing they're filled up in the lord and in power and they emerge out of that stronger than they went in to me, prayer is still a lot of work, right? Because I'm struggling to keep my mind under control. Every third word, Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for grocery list. I want to just pray for the people that are hurting. Oh my gosh, what was that? Okay, anybody seen the movie Up? Squirrel, right? Remember that all the dogs, it's the same exact thing. I'm totally that dog when I pray, right? I'm sitting here trying to have a conversation and then I just go, squirrel, and I look over there, right? 
Be clear-minded and self-controlled so you can pray. Pray about what? Pray about you. Pray about the church. Pray about the world. Pray about the pain. Pray about the joy. There's a lot of things to pray about. And we're not praying about any of them. Above all, Peter says, and he means get this one right. Above all, love each other deeply. That means in the church. That word and phrase is pulled out of a Greek concept of an athlete straining with all their strength. That's how you're supposed to love us. Not tolerate us. Not kind of, eh, they're cool. Strain in love. Force things to happen to where you are loving us deeply because it will not come natural for you. Our congregation should not be one that kind of just goes, oh, they're sweet. But we should be forcing ourselves to grow in the depth of love for one another, whatever that takes. Love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. What does that mean? Right? I have six options. I'm not going to share any of them. Here's what I think it means. I think it means that when you have a heart full of love for someone else, you're completely other focused, you want the best for them, and with all your energy, you're trying to bless them, then when they screw up, you don't care as much. I think that's what it means. Think about your kids, right? You so badly want them to succeed that when they sin against you, you can just move on. And still seek their best. It doesn't stop your whole world. And then you draw a line in the sand. And then you have to hold a grudge. You don't do that with your kids. Why? Because your heart is so full of love for them. It covers over the wrongs that they do. If that was the case in the church, we would have unity and peace. Yeah? Because it's kind of like, you know what? You did that. What? We'll roll with it. All right. No, I'm not cool with that. No, that's not okay. But I'm not going to stop our relationship over it. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. In the early church, that was absolutely necessary. Why? There was no money to put people up in a place and there was no place to put them up for or into. You had to have them in your home. So all the church, remember they had to host churches. They didn't have a church building for hundreds of years. It was always in houses. Somebody had to host it. Somebody had to be hospitable. And then they had traveling guys going around training the leadership because Christianity was so new. Where were they going to stay? You always had to allow them into your home. Hospitality was demanded not only by the culture, but by need. He said, I want you to offer hospitality, but I I don't want you to do it with a bad heart. Want you to do without grumbling. All right. Now, for some of us, we're very easygoing. Okay? All the easygoing people, I would tell you to raise your hand, but eh, what's the point? Right? <laughs> for you that are easygoing and people oriented, you can have people over to the drop of a hat. You literally are the kind of person that you go, hey, I'm bringing over three more people, and you're like, right on, let's go. And you can work on the fly, and you're completely okay with that. The rest of you have the attitude that. If they come in our house and they don't take off their shoes, they're dead. You know what I'm talking about? Don't mess up my world. What do you think you're doing? Did that leave a ring? 
What is going on? Why would you not use a coaster, okay? I understand. Now, there's some of us that the whole idea of having someone else in our personal space messing up our stuff would basically make us rip our hair out, right? This is your challenge. Offer hospitality to other people. Have them in your personal space. And when you start freaking out, learn how to let it go. It's just stuff. Verse 10, each one, meaning all of us, all Christians, should use whatever gift he has received to serve others faithfully. You know how encouraging that is? Guess what he just said? Everyone has a gift and usefulness. Don't you ever try to tell me, I don't have any spiritual gifts. Baloney. Of course you do. If you can do anything, you can do it for the kingdom of God. As a matter of fact... You must. What are you good at? I'm good at crossword puzzles. Okay. All right. Awesome. Why are you good at crossword puzzles? What's great about that? Why is that so easy for you? How do you engage? How do you use that for community? Do you begin to share that with other people? Do you begin to say, you know what? I, this is an awesome one. I did this. Do you ever do that? Well, I'm good at cars. You have to utilize that gifting for the body. There are people here that cannot afford or do not trust the garage in the area. And they need you to help them with their cars, even the most simplistic things. I know you don't think it's a big deal, but to those of us that do not have that knowledge, it's huge. Let's say you're a teacher. Are you leading a small group? Are you helping people? Are you tutoring? Are you doing anything like that? What are you using your gifts for? What are you using what you're good at? Well, I'm great at soccer. You know what? There's an awful lot of young people in this church that would have a blast being trained by somebody who's as good as you are. Why? Even right now, right? With the whole World Cup thing going on. And you weren't able to get involved with a high school group or with a junior high group and teaching them and training them and going, hey, one day let's just go out to the park and I'll show you what I got. Everything can be used. And you don't just do it when it's convenient. You do it faithfully and consistently. And then he uses two examples. He said, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others faithfully, administering God's grace in its various forms, meaning God's going to bless people through all of us. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. So let's say you have a preaching gift. Or let's say that you're called to share the Lord. A lot of us, we all go, oh, good, he's not talking about me. I hate public speaking, right? No, he is talking about you. Why? Because everyone, he just said in his word, must give a reason for the hope that lies within. Everyone is required to share the word of God. When you do it, do it as one speaking the very words of God. Do it with confidence, do it with boldness, and do it with humility. If anyone serves, are we all called to be servants? Yeah, that's why it's a year of servanthood here, right? If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides. That means don't just run around and burn out trying to do a bunch of stuff to make God love you more. It means do what he asks you to do because he'll empower you to do what he asks you to do. Serve in the power that he gives you. Serve in the callings that he gives you. So that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen.
Why are we so inconsistent with our identity? Is it like a diet where you know what you need to be doing, but it's not the end of the world if you don't? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. And may we be the ones that are out there serving in the ways that you want us to serve, touching the lives you want us to touch, living the way you want us to live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.